hppodcraft.com. North of Arkham, the hills rise dark, wild, and wooded, and much overgrown, an area through which the Miskatonic flows seaward, almost at one boundary of the wooded tract. Travelers in this region are seldom impelled to go beyond the outskirts of the wood, though a faint track leads into it and presumably goes through to the hills and beyond the hills to the Miskatonic, and beyond that into open country once more. What deserted houses have been left by the ravages of time bear a surprisingly uniform aspect of weather-beaten squalor. And while the wooded region itself shows signs of singular vitality, there seems to be little evidence of fertility in the country around. Indeed, a traveler on the Aylesbury Pike, which opens from River Street in Arkham, and proceeds in leisurely fashion west and northwest of the ancient gambrel-roofed town toward the strange, lonely Dunwich country beyond Dean's Corners, cannot help but be impressed with the remarkable degree of what at first glance might seem reforestation in that region, but which on closer examination proves to be not new growth but ancient hardy trees flourishing, it seems, centuries after time should have taken its toll on them. It is 2018, and here we are again, making perhaps our final trip into the wilderness around H.P. Lovecraft's City of Arkham. That was the first paragraph of August Derlis, The Lurker at the Threshold, a story he liked to put H.P. Lovecraft in front of (laughs) with very large letters... So that's why we're covering it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here trapped for all eternity at hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Who was that reader? Our reader for this trip into Lovecraft country is none other than Anthony Tedesco. Woohoo! Now, I've been to Anthony's house. He has a map of Arkham right there in his bathroom. Ooh. If you if you pee standing up, which I do, don't believe the haters, <laughs> you can study it. I know that Anthony studied it because I could sense him behind me when I'm peeing sometimes at his house. <laughs> and I think he's looking over my shoulder at that map. And that's why he'll be an excellent guide on our journey. He's a fantastic voiceover artist, and we're glad to have him. Anthony Tedesco, ladies and gentlemen. Mm, yeah. Uh, last week, we released our live show from Providence. We recorded it at the Necronomicon in August. Yes, we did a fundraiser to get us there. And one of the rewards of that fundraiser was you get to pick a story if you pledged a certain amount. And this one, The Lurker at the Threshold, was chosen by Dr. Thomas Rawlings. He's the design director of Auric Digital. Oh, yeah. They brought us those uh, Cthulhu Christmas cards we were raving about oh, over the holidays. I loved them. Yeah, they're great. I got a stack of them uh, that I'm going to use next year as, as well. <laughs> Auric Digital is awesome. Thomas Rawlings is awesome. He emailed us around the time of the Kickstarter and wrote, it was me who picked Lurker at the threshold, and in parentheses, sorry. <laughs> it was the first Mythos story I read, so it has resonance for me. And actually... I mean, this novel may be a first for many people who wanted to dig into H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Because on the copy I have here, it says he wrote it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and one might easily walk into a bookstore and grab it for that reason. The deal with this novel, which we'll be covering for the next few weeks, is Derleth used some of Lovecraft's notes and partial writings to put this whole story together. Mm-hmm. According to Joshi, of the 50,000 words in this book, only 1,200 were Lovecraft's. <laughs> That's so crazy. And are they even, is it even 1,200 words in succession or are they just random <laughs> words that Lovecraft has used before? <laughs> we And we, we covered some Durleth stories in our live show uh, that you yeah. just heard last week, which were sexy and amazing. And yeah. uh, we discussed for the millionth time this scam that Durleth had going, you know, where he'd write <laughs> something based on random notes from Lovecraft and then slap his name on it. And I don't want to belabor it because we've talked about it so much before, but I have to say I come to this once again <laughs> with fresh amazement that this is even legal. Like, how can you do this? 
Uh, well, I guess there was nobody to stop him. It's still happening, though. Like, I can't, it's just unimaginable to me that he's still getting away with this. Pfeiffer, what you should start doing is writing Bram Stoker books. I, yeah, I agree. Just pick up some old Bram Stoker stories and just say Bram Stoker with Chad Pfeiffer. Yep, I'll find five or six words from the book and then I'll go, <laughs> here we go, Dracula 2. Let's do it. Awesome. But this novel, The Lurker at the Threshold, was published in 1945 by Arkham House in hardcover and only 3,041 copies were printed, which mm. is kind of a strange number. It is. I have the 1970 Panther Horror Edition Go UTH Panthers, <laughs> which is the first British paperback edition. See, and that I find is weird too, because I would not call this Panther horror. Like when I think about Panther horror, I think about giant panthers attacking a city <laughs> or a guy turns into a panther or like there's a rookie cop on an all panther police force and they're corrupt and he's a vampire or something like that. But this is not Panther horror and it's not Lovecraft. Poorly described. Derelith said on this, I constructed and wrote The Lurker at the Threshold. Derelith acknowledged, which had nowhere been laid out, planned, or plotted by Lovecraft. <laughs> he just like overtly admits it. He elsewhere described the novel as decidedly inferior work since nine-tenths of it were written by me from Lovecraft's notes. Joshi found that Derelith used two Lovecraft fragments of evil sorceries done in New England of demons in no human shape, that's a mouthful, yeah. and The Round Tower. He also used an untitled fragment usually referred to as the Rose Window mm. in framing his narrative. I know that some authors, I mean, to this day, will maybe loan out their name to sell more product. I grabbed a James Patterson book at the airport recently, mm -hmm. and I was surprised to find that James Patterson had written the book with three other authors. Whoa. I mean, they basically had slapped his name on it, and there were three little thriller novelettes in there that other people had written. Wow. He's a best-selling author, and I'm sure the idea is to you know, hire these people, churn out more product, slap his name on it. It made me mad, though. I didn't read the book because I find that dishonest. Right. But at least James Patterson is alive and he's part of the scheme. You know, this is something that right. he wants to have done. I ordered a copy of this book, Lurker at the Threshold. Uh, my copy, it's a paperback from Carolyn Graff in New York, and it was published in 1994. Mm. Right. So this is just still going on. Yeah. The sole author listed on the cover and the title page is H.P. Lovecraft. Only ah. place it mentions August Erleth is on the back of the synopsis where it says, still, H.P. Lovecraft with August Erleth. But I don't think as a kid, if I had to pick this up, I would have even perceived that. No, of course not. You're right. We should be publishing Bram Stoker books, some new Edgar Allan Poe books, you yeah. know, Telltale Panther, something like that. We, could... <laughs> we should dive into this book, but I will say there are some positives about it. I like the title of the book a lot. Yeah. The Lurker at the Threshold is a cool title. It kind of reminds me of going to the bathroom at Tedesco's house, actually. <laughs> so it has personal meaning to me. Another good thing about this book, another thing it has going for it, is that it's broken into three parts, which makes mm -hmm. it very convenient for our coverage. That's right. The first part is called Billington's Wood. The story starts off about this area on the outskirts of Arkham called Billington's Wood. This area was named after a guy called Elijah Billington, who owned the land and had a mansion out there way back in the early 1800s. The land had been in his family since his great-grandfather. That was the guy that actually built the mansion. Mm -hmm. Elijah decided to go back to England in his old age and left the house. Now, in the year 1921, Elijah's descendant, Ambrose Dewart, has inherited it. The house was maintained by lawyers who kept uh, the taxes paid and the whole thing is official. Elijah's son, Laban, inherited it and then it got transferred onto his descendant and then onto his. Of course, there are local legends uh, about the woods and the house, but Dewart doesn't know about them. And most of the legends have been lost to time. We just know at this point that the house is back in the woods, quote, near the tower in the circle of stone. There were some kind of odd noises that came from there back when 
Elijah Billington was in residence. Stewart has come to town and he is staying at Hotel Miskatonic until all the paperwork gets sorted and he's from England. Right, and folks know he's there because he puts a notice in the paper basically asking for workers to help him restore the mansion. So that gets everybody whispering. And finally, he moves out to the house. It's old and creepy. It doesn't have any electricity or phones because it's flipping old. Right. It describes Stuart as being 50 years old and brown-skinned, mm. which kind of surprised me if he's living in England. <laughs> what does he mean by brown-skinned? Does he mean he's black or of, of Indian descent? So I haven't finished this book yet, so I don't know if there's any revelations to come of that nature. But it also says that he has a flare of red hair. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that he is Caucasian in, a, in appearance. Maybe he's just got a tan. Right. It also says he's a hawk-faced man of medium height. So we know right away that he's part hawk. <laughs> you know, we know that. But it's said right away that when he comes into town that he has a remarkable resemblance to his ancestor, Elijah Billington. And there are the bishops and the Watleys. They all live in this area, and they've lived there since Elijah was there. So they they darkly whisper about this resemblance. Dewart actually had a son, but he died during the Great War. So now Dewart's just trying to find some direction in his life. Right. This is like a reverse of the setup for Rats in the Walls. You know, in that story, it was a guy lost his son in the war. So he went to England to reclaim his ancestral house, right? And yep. here it's an Englishman coming to America to reclaim his lost estate. It's just the other way around. The property has to stay in the family at all costs. If something happened to Dewart, his cousin would get the place. Uh, he's not to sell it. And he vaguely remembers his mother having strange instructions, something about uh, not to cause the water to cease flowing around the island, nor to molest the tower, nor entreat the stones, nor open the door, which leads to strange time and place, nor yet to touch upon the window seeking to change it. Yes. Well, I mean, those instructions had passed down from Elijah Billington in legal documents. Yes. I believe all his mother told him was that it would be wise not to, you know, they had property in Massachusetts and it would be wise not to sell it. But those instructions that you just mentioned, they're really vague. I don't think that his mother told him those things because he would have followed immediately with like, what do you mean don't molest the tower? <laughs> you gotta be more specific about that, mom. Maybe he's one of those guys whose mom just talks a lot and so he doesn't really listen to her oh, most of the time. Be, yeah. You know, it's like she's saying all this stuff and he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, mom. He's just like, molest the tower. I don't know what that means, but it's so not worth it getting into this conversation. <laughs> I'm not going to get into yeah. it with my mother. Uh, <laughs> near the house was a creek that was a tributary to the Miskatonic, but it has long since dried up. There's also a tower on the land. It's made of stone, 12 feet across, 20 feet high with a cone top. The entrance is sealed up. The tower, also strange masonry with odd designs in it. Stuart wonders, did Elijah build it or was it there before him? Mm -hmm. Also, the standing stones around the tower, they had strange marks upon them. Yeah, the, the standing stones, they kind of look like Stonehenge, right, around this big yeah. tower. Stuart's in a nice situation. He's got enough money that he can pretty much decide how he wants to spend his time. It says his primary determination now is to inform himself as completely as possible of the advantages of his property. So as soon as he moves in, he's just out exploring, digging in, finding out what the situation is with his history, and, and that's when he finds that tower on his, his tour of the grounds. So back at the house, he finds a leather-bound journal written by Laban Billington. Mm -hmm. That's Elijah's son, again. It's mostly his studies, but it also has personal notes about his life. Dewart figures out that Laban was his actual great-grandfather, and this book was written when Laban was about 11 years old. Laban's mother died when he was young, and he hung out with this old American Indian guy called Kwamis. He was Laban's primary caregiver, I guess? Like a nanny? I feel like he's just the Native American as, you know, he was hired to be his friend or something. <laughs> Here you, here's your Indian. <laughs> Go have fun. Seems uh, Kwamis was the strong, silent type, but when he did talk, he told Laban stories of legends 
from his people. Uh, one time, Laban found Quamus praying at the stone tower that was actually forbidden by his father. He was like, nobody's supposed to go by that tower. Laban heard Quamus saying the word Narlato or Narlotep over and over. So when Quamus realized, he found out and begged Laban not to tell his father. But Elijah eventually did find out about it, and Quamus was punished. When you go out there, is that molesting the tower to go out there and say Narlatep <laughs> over and over? <laughs> no, it's like entreating upon the stones, I believe, is one of them. That would be, yeah, you'd be entreating the stones. I think that's the, the one, the rule, which we'll get to in, in a bit here. You can romance the stones, but you better not entreat them. <laughs> <laughs> Laban also mentions that he was forbidden to go to Dunwich and Innsmouth for obvious reasons. One night, Laban is awoken in the night and hears strange sounds and he sees lights in the distance. The sounds were like in human screams and not like those of an animal either. Mm -hmm. He went to find his dad, but he was gone. He hadn't even gone into his bed to sleep at all. Right. When he asked his dad about this the next day, he told Laban that he must have been dreaming. Two weeks later, it happens again, this time coming from the direction of Dunwich. After that, Kwamis was gone. His dad told him that Kwamis had gone away and would not be back. Yeah, he's just disappeared. The last entry in the book tells of their flight from Arkham and how the boy was confused as to why they had to leave in such a hurry with no real explanation from his father. And he'd actually seen his father out with Kwamis at night, you know, walking toward the woods carrying something strange before Kwamis disappeared. And when he heard strange things out there, he heard his father's voice among the inhuman screaming. So, like, clearly they did something they should not have done. Dewart also finds a document called Of Evil Sorceries Done in New England of Damons in No human shape. A copy of some other book, not the original. Uh, right. The handwriting is bad, so a lot of it is unreadable, but it interests Stuart, so he starts to rewrite it and figure out what it's actually saying. It seems like there was something of interest in this New England Demons of No Human Shape book, and, and whomever copied this out just copied the interesting portion. It talks about this guy, Richard Billington, who lived in New Dunwich. Which would be the old name for Dunwich, I believe. And right. I assume that this is the original Billington who built the house. So it's like maybe the early 1700s or something like that. It was said that he got instructions from evil books and Indian savages to find immortality. He did all kinds of magic stuff. Uh, seemed he called something out of the sky that he couldn't control. <laughs> Seven people died in the woods that year. And the Wampanoag medicine man called Misquamacus came to the white people and told them that Billington did something beyond his repair. Billington was dead, eaten by the thing that he'd summoned, and the medicine man managed to imprison it in the standing stones. Uh, he described the thing. It was sometimes small and solid, like a great toad the bigness of many ground hogs, but sometimes big and cloudy with no shape, though with a face which had serpents grown from it. That's the thing that Richard Billington called up, this toadish, tentacled, Thing, but way to undercut the scariness with the bigness of many groundhogs, you know? <laughs> Although I looked it up and people don't know this, but in colonial America, everything was measured in groundhogs, as it turns out. Oh, like, if okay. you find, yeah, if you find recipe cards from that area, it'll say boil water the bigness of one groundhog. Oh. A little factoid for you. So it was actual... Measurement of mass, not of length or... Everything. Oh, okay. A measurement of anything. Yeah, you'd go like, oh, I'm, I'm three groundhogs hungry. You know, it just, <laughs> they'd throw it out to measure absolutely anything. <laughs> so this thing that Richard called up was called Osadagawab, child of Sadagawa. Some of the indigenous people would worship it, but none ever brought it down. Because of the exceeding great evilness of it. They knew better. The medicine man tells him where the stones are and to stay away from them and that's it pretty much yeah 
Folks afterwards doubt that Richard Dick Billington was really dead. <laughs> and that's all the information from this copied book he's found. The Native Americans know how to get a hold of this monster, but they don't do it. Dickie Billington, on the other hand, did, and he got ate up by it, they say. And obviously, this Miss Quamicus guy has a similar name to Quamis, the Native American right. from like 100 years later. I'm, I'm going to assume yes. it's the same person. That was an assumption I made as well. Yes. Dewart continues to find lots of scary books, so we get the litany of scary books. Of course, it's got to be in here. We got the Liber Ivanus, Cultistus Ghouls, Divermus Mysterious. I was I was reading it this time, though, and I thought somebody would make a little bundle of money if they could make a block of all of these scary books. Oh, yeah. A fake one that I could just put up on a shelf. Oh, yeah. And maybe it would have a compartment in it so I could keep other books or trinkets or whatnot inside all the books. And I could just put it on the shelf and there they all are. If somebody does that, I'll buy it. I'm just throwing that out there. Stuart finally gets to a book that interests him. The Thaumaturgical Prodigies of New English Canaan, published in Boston in 1801, written by the Reverend Ward Phillips. The interesting part of that is that in 1787, a woman saw a monstrous bat with a human face. (laughs) Not a rat, but a bat. And this face looked a lot like the long dead face of Richard Bellingham. Is this maybe supposed to be Billington? He wonders this. And not, I don't wonder this. He wonders this. And in fact, there's a note in the text that says this is probably Billington is what they mean. Yeah. But the account is kind of heartbreaking of this bat man. It's like, because this wasn't just a sighting. Yes. The woman actually pulled the thing out of the woods. It was neither beast nor man, but like a monstrous bat with a human face. It made no sound, but looked at all and sundry with baleful eyes. The horrible beast man was examined by the court of assizes, and the witch then burnt by the order of the high sheriff on the 5th of June in the year 1788. I felt bad for it. Yeah. But I guess what it is, the implication here is that Richard got grabbed by the toad monster and then somehow got spit out as this hybrid thing and then was burnt alive by the court. Yeah. All this stuff is pretty cool. I actually liked it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really into the story so far. Yeah. This excites Dewart, but he goes to bed and sleeps well, except for like an hour where he thinks something is watching him from above. <gasps> the next day, he goes to Arkham to do some research on Elijah Billington. He goes to the library and the newspapers, and he finds some published correspondence from Elijah to the editor of the newspaper about Reverend Phillips' book that he had written. Mm. It seems that Elijah was accused of practicing magic and it went to trial, but he was cleared of all charges. All this stuff is straight up a game of Call of Cthulhu. Yes. As well in this book. I mean, he's going to the library, doing the research. I could just see the little printouts. It seems to me that the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game was almost really based more off of these stories than the actual Lovecraft stories. For sure. I mean, Durleth really mastered the pattern of how this stuff is supposed to go and and, yeah. and sets it out. And this becomes the template for the game, really. Yeah. The guy that wrote about the Reverend's book, John Druven, said that he himself heard noises from out in Billington's wood. Then in the paper, there was a notice that anyone trespassing in Billington wood would be arrested and punished. Mm-hmm. So this defensiveness made the Reverend write in the paper basically what's Billington hiding? So Elijah replies that the Reverend and Durvin are not qualified to do an investigation. And he goes on to say that innocent people were killed over 100 years ago because people made up things. You know, talking about witchcraft. Exactly. It's this whole public back and forth thing in the paper, letters, and kind of like a public fight between these parties. And Billington, this is Elijah Billington, he's pretty good with snappy comebacks. I mean, everything he does kind of schools these guys. So Druven keeps writing jabs back at Billington until uh, there's nothing from Druven. It seems in later reports in the paper that he came up missing. Reverend Phillips and Deliverance Mm. Westrip, what a name, went to visit Billington and both of them returned with no evidence of wrongdoing, but also with a hazy memory. They remember Billington being nice, 
and Quamis made them lunch, and then that's it. That's all they remembered. Yeah, those guys got roofied because Billington has been so angry with everybody, and then suddenly he's like, come on out to the yeah property. We'll make a little lunch for you. It'll be delicious. And then they're like, oh, I kind of don't remember what happened to me. Six months of newspapers go by with nothing about missing Druven. Mm-hmm. There is a report of a mangled body found near Innsmouth. It was later identified as John Druven. They deduced that he went to sea and the vessel wrecked and he washed back upon shore. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but okay. Another account that Dewart finds is a week after Billington's leave for England. The sheriff was looking for Quamis. They couldn't find him. It seems a letter from Westrip said that they suspected that they were drugged or a spell was put on them when they went to a vis- when they went to visit. Right. And that's about all he found. Dewart goes to have some lunch and process what he found. He thinks about the stones surrounding the tower. He goes back to the tower and goes inside. Now, I thought it was walled up. I thought so, too, but uh, apparently there was a way in. That confused me as well, but he he manages to get up in there. He goes upstairs and notices there's a bas-relief with the same repeating pattern. At the top, he shines his flashlight up to see a carving in the roof. And the description of this carving is the rough shape of a star in the center of which there appeared to be a caricature of a single giant eye. But it was not an eye. Rather, a broken lozenge in shape with certain lines suggestive of flames, or perhaps a solitary pillar of flame. Mm-hmm. And that is the Derleth Elder Sign. Right. I wonder how many groundhogs big it is, the, the sign <laughs> that he's talking about. Wish they'd spelled that out. But yeah, this is the Derleth. This is what people know uh, as the Elder Sign, and it is, in fact, not the, the Lovecraft elder sign which is right some branches or something right or it's actually a physical thing that you do so Dort's looking at this tower and he gets this kind of desire to restore it Mm -hmm. he wants to move the stone that the elder sign is on so that there would be room to stand up in the top of the place Uh with some time he's able to chip it out and open it up the roof looks out onto the woods and he can see his house the sun glinted off one of the windows in the house giving it a rose colored look which i'm sure is going to Factor in later into the story. Yes, this window. Uh, the next day, Dewart sets out for Dunwich. He finds a couple of local yokels and asks if any of them know any people with Indian blood still around. They say that there are no Indians left, and then they ask if he's a Billington. He says yes, and their mood changes. They become fawning and subservient, and they tell Dewart that there are some families with Indian blood, the bishops in particular, and they give him directions to where they can find uh, the bishop family. I, I admit I was kind of rolling my eyes at these story beats because they are so templatized like Call of Cthulhu beats where they come in and they meet the two old men and then they have to go yep. talk to the weird inbred locals. But then I realized we have all that stuff in Dead Beats. Yep. <laughs> and then I thought, well, why aren't we selling that as an H.P. Lovecraft book? You know, we'd probably do much better. Oh, yeah. Let's great... change it. Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft. Dead Beats by H.P. Lovecraft with these two assholes. Uh, He finds the old shabby house and a woman answers the door. She calls herself Mrs. Bishop and she confirms that she's got Indian blood. Mm -hmm. Narragansett and Wampanoag. She says if Billington comes looking for Indian blood, he's probably looking for Quamis. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he left and never came back. She also tells him that she's seen a picture of Elijah Billington. Mrs. Giles has a drawing of him and he looks just like Dewart. She tells him that he should leave the stone in place and keep the door sealed or it will let them get back in from the outside. Now, Dewart is thinking, uh-oh, why was I compelled to do these things? Yeah, maybe it wasn't entirely his decision, right, to do those things. Uh, she tells him that the legend is that he called down something, but then it got sent back. He learned all this from his books, his scary books, and Mrs. Bishop says that she's seen something fluttering around Dewart and that he should stay away from the stuff if he knows what's good for him. I'm guessing he doesn't. Of course not. <laughs> but when Dewart senses something, what she's talking about, he kind of stands up startled because there's something around him. There's a presence that he can't quite see. Mm-hmm. 
and it, it freaks him out. The woman strangely begs him not to hurt her. He's just kind of weirded out by the fact people are afraid of him. Right. So he asks her where Mrs. Giles lives, and she gives him the directions. As he leaves, Mrs. Bishop cackles in her house. Then she starts chanting in some strange language that is an Indian. Mm. Nagai, Nagagra, Shog, Yaga, Nayato, Nyalotopa, Nogtatat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As usual in a Durlath story, he goes, I don't know. It was hard to make it out, but if I had to guess, and then it's something ridiculously <laughs> accurate, you know. Shagoth. <laughs> I think I heard those kinds of things. So off to Mrs. Giles' house, on his way, some big hunched over guy screams, Ma, Ma, he's a coming. <laughs> we totally have a beat just like that at Deadbeats. I know. By H.P. Lovecraft, available now at your favorite <laughs> bookselling sites. So Dewar goes to the house and introduces himself. The woman goes pale. He tells her he means her no harm, and Mrs. Bishop sent him to see the drawing that she has. Yeah. So she lets him in, sits him down. She shows him the drawing. It's crude, but he can tell that the figure looks a lot like himself. She offers it to him to keep, but he turns it down. He can tell that she and her giant son are scared of him, so he leaves. Yeah. And he thinks how odd and repellent the people of Dunwich are. Like the oddly flat ears, grown so close to their heads that they might have been attached over a far wider area than normal, and flaring in bat fashion along the back, <laughs> and the pale, bulging eyes, almost ichthyic, and the broad, loose mouths, Batrachian by suggestion, sound almost like Innsmouth folks to me. Yeah, they're just general monstery people, I think. Yeah, I think that's it. The next day, Dewart gets summoned to his cousin in Boston, Stephen Bates. Stephen got all of Dewart's stuff from England shipped to him. So for the next couple of days, Dewart has to organize all these boxes of his stuff, moving it to his new house, itemizing it, decorating, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One of these things includes the directives that have been passed down about the house. And so he digs that up with a bit of interest. There are these directions, very old, written by Elijah Billington, and we've already mentioned them. They are... Yeah. Don't stop the water flowing around the tower, which that's already happened, right? Because didn't that? Yeah, it dried up. So there's no water there. Yep. Don't molest the tower. Yeah, did that already. He thinks he did that. He's asking a lot of questions of himself if he's a molester or not, but he's pretty sure he did it. <laughs> uh, don't entreat the stones. <laughs> ask the stones? Entreat means like to ask. I don't I don't get it. He didn't ask the stones anything. So he's not so, yeah. really worried about that. The rest of this stuff is really odd. Do not open the door that leads to strange time and place. Okay. <laughs> don't invite him who lurks at the threshold. <laughs> don't call out to the hills. Yep. Do not disturb the frogs, fireflies, or whippoorwills. They are your guards. Uh-huh. Do not touch the window and do not sell the property unless there is a clause that protects the tower and the stones. So, of course, Dewart hasn't put any of this together. He just wonders why his great-grandfather was so hung up on this tower. Mm-hmm. Dewart goes and checks out the window in the house. The window has uh, concentric circles with rays traveling outwards from the center and the multicolored glass which framed the round central piece made it especially bright in the late afternoon when the sun hits it square on. Mm-hmm. And now as he's looking at it, it, kind of trips him out a bit and he gets a little bit dizzy. He's not sure why that happened, but he's like, oh, okay, whatever. And then he goes to make some coffee and continues to unpack. As it gets dark, he's still kind of hung up on this window. So he gets a chair and he sits in front of it. And right away, the moonlight starts to turn to witch fire and it gets all crazy looking, seemingly moving. But then it stops. Finally, this freaks him out, like for real. Yeah. And he keeps looking out the window. He sees the moon behind the tower, and then there's some kind of creature flapping around the tower. Weird. And you can see it's silhouetted in the moon. Now he's really shaken, but he decides to go for a walk 
not in the woods because it's dark, but down Ellsbury Pike. Now, didn't it also form a face in the window or something too? Like a giant face? Oh, maybe. That had like tentacles coming off of the back of it or something. I think he saw that as well. I mean, clearly it's a crazy magic window. So as he's walking down the Ellsbury Pike, he notices that there's like a faint glow in the direction of Dunwich. Also, maybe some sounds. He goes home, he goes to bed, and he has this other crappy night of sleep. And this keeps happening to him. He's just not sleeping well. Well, so one day he's listening to his battery-powered radio and he hears some news. Seems like some guy's body was found in the water and they think that he jumped or was thrown out of an airplane. Yeah. Also, something similar to this has happened over 100 years ago, they bring up on this report. Finally, things are starting to finally click for Dewart, and he feels uneasy about this. He realizes that he's done some stuff and he wonders what entreat the stones means. <laughs> Did I entreat the stones? I might have accidentally entreated the stones. I Did I do it? Did I not? You know, so what's with the door? What is him who lurks? So many questions. But Dewart's conclusion is that all of this, all these legends must have been covering up a smuggling operation. So he's in some serious denial. Right. But that, you know, maybe that is true. It's like a Scooby-Doo kind of defense where they said, oh, everything's haunted out there. Don't mess with it. But that is where they were shipping in the cocaine and stuff, you know. I remember that episode of Scooby-Doo where they, they got the cocaine smugglers. <laughs> That was a good one. Also, like, he's clearly getting up and doing some of this stuff at night, right? Like, yeah, it's obvious to me. Right. You know, he goes, oh, my clothes. I thought I, you know, went to bed in my clothes, but they were all folded up over there when I woke up and I had a terrible night of sleep. And then somebody found a dead body that was so beat up they thought it dropped from an airplane. Some, like, something <laughs> crazy is happening. When he goes back to unpacking, he finds this packet of letters marked the Bishop Letters. And he's like, oh, wait a minute, Bishop. That's this, you know, I just talked to that family. These are letters from a Jonathan Bishop. And they're funny because they are they really seem like innocent letters that two friends would be writing to each other, but they're very casually talking about summoning monsters and stuff, basically. You know, <laughs> yeah. basically, Jonathan, he goes, hey, I summoned uh, him who is not to be named. You know, I don't really know if I should have done that. <laughs> and I need yeah. some help in getting this thing bound. It's getting worse and worse by the fourth letter that he's written. This thing's coming to my window, calling my name in the, in the middle of the night. You know, I opened a window and it smelled really bad. And this thing, this slimy thing touched my face and caused me to pass out. Out. You got to help me out. Uh, it came out of the portal that you left open, and I'm saying you got to come back and, and close this up. Right, because these letters are to him when he's in England. Anyway, it's just further proof that when Elijah left, it was because of some crazy sorcery that he'd done that was impacting the families around here. So Dewart isn't sure what to make of this, so he goes into Miskatonic Library, looks mm -hmm. up some of the people mentioned in there. This guy, Wilbur Corey, who uh, was missing, and Jedediah Tyndall, who was also mm -hmm. missing, and there's a bunch of other disappearances. So those names were in the letters, and they were also reported missing, so these letters have some connection to the truth. Right. Wilbur and Jed reappeared later, months later, but they were dead and fresh dead, even though they've been missing for months. And But before that even happened, uh, Jonathan Bishop, the author of these letters, disappeared. So the thing, the slimy thing finally got to him, I guess. So George thinks of talking to his cousin, Stephen, who is a historian and local area expert. But then he's not sure he should trust him. And he's not sure why he's thinking that, but he does think that and decides not to contact him and then goes to bed. <laughs> that night, he has crazy dreams. He dreamed of a bird monster that tore people apart. He dreamed himself dressed as some kind of priest, and he dreamed of the tower and strange lights. He went to the tower, and from the window that he opened up, he called the thing down in Latin. He wakes up from this dream totally exhausted. He also goes, ah, oh, my feet are all sworn, swollen up, and there's brambles stuck to me. So, <laughs> again, he was clearly going out in the night and doing something. Yeah, He's starting to realize that. So he wants to try and figure out what, what was I doing? What was I up to? He goes out to the tower 
again. Mm-hmm. And he sees that a lot of these stones out there are broken. And inside the tower, there's like fresh blood in there. Yeah. He thinks, you know, maybe an animal was in here and it fell down or it killed something. And But yeah, there's no yeah. feathers. There's no tufts of fur. You know, he doesn't really want to consider the actual implications of this but it's entirely possible that he went out and hurt somebody here yeah uh, he leaves the tower he goes back to his house it, it's like what i said before he finds that his bedclothes have some blood on them so he, and now he finally decides it's time to contact his cousin steven and get him in on this because he needs some help but then again part of him makes him not want to contact him like he's thinking it's He's afraid to do so for some reason. Yeah, it's a weird conflict he's got. He goes, I need the company. I should ask my cousin to come stay with me like for two weeks because I'm getting a little loony in my solitude. But then another voice in his head goes, don't invite an intruder, you know, (laughs) stick to yourself. Uh, As he's having this inner conflict on the radio, he hears a report from Markham. A Dunwich resident, Jason Osborne, middle-aged farmer, disappears in the night. Coincidence shrieked in one corner of Ambrose Stewart's consciousness. But he was filled with such alarm that he literally tore himself from the couch where he had lain down and fell upon the radio to shut it off. Then, almost instinctively, he sat down and wrote a frantic letter to Stephen Bates, explaining that he needed Bates's company and imploring him to come at no matter what cost. As soon as he had written it, he set out to mail it, but with each step he took, he felt a compulsion to retain the letter, to think again, to reconsider his position. It took great physical and mental effort for him to drive into Arkham and deposit the letter to Stephen Bates beyond recall in the post office of that city, whose ancient gambrel roofs and shuttered windows seemed to crouch and leer at him with ghastly camaraderie as he went by. And that ends the first section of the book. That's right. The second section is called Manuscript by Stephen Bates. So we're going to switch characters here and I think get a perspective from outside of what's going on with our main character here, Dewart. I know this is super derivative, the story, but I'm really enjoying it. You know what? So far, this this was a pretty good section. There's some genuinely creepy stuff in there. And, you know, he's doing pretty good with the with the mythos world so far. So vastly different than other uh, Durleth stories that we've read and made fun of. So far, this one's pretty good. I want to thank our reader, Anthony Tedesco, for rocking and rolling. He's going to be joining us all month, I hope. Yeah, he's joining us for at least two more Groundhogs worth of shows. So... <laughs> <laughs> He'll be there. Thanks, Anthony. And also, thank you to the recommender of this story, Thomas Rawlings. Thomas, thank you so much. You apologize for recommending the book, but you know what? We're having fun with it. I like it so far. So thanks for recommending it. And that's all we got for this week. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We'll be back again at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!